0: Hello Liturgy Guide listeners, this is your host Jesse Weiler and we have of course another great episode for you today. This is probably my favorite conversation that I've had so far with Dennis and Chris. Uh, we are talking about music today and music is really important to me especially when it comes to Mass so it was really great to learn a little more about what we sing and why we sing. So without further ado, episode 6 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy
2: I'll call upon the Holy Spirit to enliven my mind, even though it's this ungodly hour. What is it, like 5.30? We yeah, should call, call upon the Holy Spirit. To yes, use. because
1: the Holy Spirit is the breath right. behind the Word. Holy, it's always the right time to call upon the Holy
2: Spirit, but especially when you're about to do a podcast on liturgical song. Song, right. We were talking in you know, previous episodes about the Word. The Father thinks of himself and speaks the Word, it sort of begets the Son, who's a perfect image of himself. Uh, But then they're joined by this love of the Holy Spirit, which is often compared to the breath, the breath over the waters of creation. And so if you think about singing versus speaking, there's an elevation of that breath it requires a sustained breath over a long time. And there's also pitch to it and harmony and rhythm and meter. And when you think about all the things a choir has to do, a whole bunch of people who are separate, who are doing their own thing, they might want to be little soloists. Instead, have to subordinate their will to the will of a conductor and then listen to the person on their left and the right and sing as a group in the mystical body and take that simple word of text and then elevate it and extend it. You could say, Lord, have mercy. Or you could do a five-minute curie from the Mozart C Minor Mass that suddenly the, the words, Lord, have mercy, take on a new um, reality, a new depth of meaning and an extension over time.
0: Is there any way that goes further, or is it just spoken, spoken word A and then to elevate that? It gets to you know sung, so I guess what I'm saying is is adding instruments. Does that make it even better, or is is a sung word you know, the most elevated we can get in terms of liturgy?
1: No, the instruments too can uh, adorn the word and make it more uh, beautiful and clear. And in, throughout the church's uh, history, uh, thinking about music, uh, she always had a she was always uh, focused on the word, and if the instruments um obscured that word or clouded it or made it less uh uh, clear then the the instruments had to go away and you know even now uh still from sacrosanctum concilium and the church's uh, documents since then the the most privileged instrument to support singing is the uh, pipe organ really why is that why chris (laughs) because in 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 some ways, it's really a sacramental imitation of the human voice. Well, first of all, this this is very beautifully said by the bishops in their document, um, Sing to the Lord. It says, the primary musical instrument is the unaccompanied human voice. So that's, first of all, it's the it's the human voice that is the, the church's most...
0: So that is so, so that is the highest place, the, the song voice.
1: Right, and insofar as other musical instruments uh, can help... Uh, Imitate it and make it more beautiful. They can be added, but this pipe organ is, in a sense, uh, it, it's kind of configured like uh, like we are. It, it There's bellows and lungs, and the air is forced up through kind of a voice box. You know, the the pipes and the reeds and whatnot, and it produces something that is very uh, similar to a human voice. And so the two of them together, uh, the organ a- accompanying the voice, are a very suitable type of uh, 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 of arrangement.
0: And but, and what is the? I understand there's a church document. That talks specifically about music. Uh, what is that? What is that called again? And what and what do they talk
1: about? Well, this is uh, this is enlightening, uh, just in the fact that there are many church documents that oh, talk wow. about music. So, for example, w- w- there have been three U.S. bishops' documents on liturgical music in the last fifty years. Now, that in itself indicates that, you know, this um, liturgical music is a uh, is a part of the Mass is a subject that is Difficult to understand to apply. There's various opinions
0: and it's evolving. It's continue. We're continuing well, to understand it more
1: well to understand it to apply it correctly
2: mm-hmm. um, right. Probably the earliest one that still affects us is Trele by Pius X in 1903. God bless you What was yes. that Trele and he was the Pope, you know, who um, was a musician before he became Pope and the first thing he did was issue this document on chant And he talked about how sung uh, speech, especially chant, would be uh, putting the words of the mass back on the lips of the people. So if you imagine you have some very complicated Mozart requiem or some some Haydn mass, it takes people of significant musical uh, sophistication to be able to sing that in the choir loft or wherever they might be. But almost everybody can sing a simple line like, and so, part of the notion of chant, which many people think of as high, fussy music, now was to allow people to sing the text of the mass that was actually in the missal. It said "people" next to the name, and uh, people weren't singing it. Uh, he wrote that. Uh, do you remember the date of that? Uh? Uh, I know you Saint Cecilia's feast day, nineteen o three.
1: Yeah, November twenty second, nineteen o three. Here's another bit of uh, liturgy nerd trivia. So, the uh, council fathers approved the schema. I think is what it's called on November twenty second, 1963. So that's, the math is right, 60 years exactly to the promulgation of this document, Trile Solicitudini. And uh, I don't think it was by accident. I think the Council Fathers had that in mind. And it was in this document, uh, Trile Solicitudini, that Pius X uses for the first time, kind of, on behalf of uh, uh, ecclesial authority, this principle of uh, active participation. And so the, council, the, the, the document from the Second Vatican Council uh, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium says that the active participation of the people is the the goal to be considered before all else, above all others, in the reform and restoration of the sacred liturgy. And so it's interesting to go back to Tralei to see what Pius X had in mind with the uh, people participating in uh, liturgical
2: music. And why is that? It's because the people in the pews are members of the mystical body of Christ. They're joining themselves to the headship of the priest who symbolically, sacramentally represents Christ. And together they are one body singing a love song of praise to the Father. And so the liturgy is sung because it's primarily a festive occasion of singing in love to the Father. So you could just say, Father, we think you're great, we love you. Or you can express it in a way that... I would like to hear
0: you chant, Father, we think you're great, we Father, love you. Father, we think you're great, we love you. Perfect.
2: Yeah. It's very simple to do. Of course, it can be also very elaborate. Um, but if you use something like the Regina Celi, right, which is the Queen of Heaven, Rejoice, Regina Celi, Le Regina Celi goes up because she's the Queen of Heaven. Heaven is up, so there's that simple level. There's a great essay by a guy named Mark Daniel Kirby who says, uh, chant is the vesture of the text, that it makes the meaning of the words more evident. So if you see a policeman walking around on his day off in his shorts and T-shirt, you might not know he's a policeman. You see him in his uniform, suddenly that interior reality of his job is now expressed and clarified. So how do you take the meaning of the text, which could be you know, fairly um, uncompelling, even though it might be very true, and then you put words to it, uh, and music to those words, and then suddenly you have uh, something that's delightful, and you walk out of the church repeating it in your mind over and over again, and it stays with you.
1: Yeah, that's true. Well, that's one of the things that uh, we know, if you want to memorize something, maybe when you were in school, you had to memorize A, B, C,
2: D, E, F, G, yeah,
1: whatever it is. Uh... What, what is that thing you guys were just doing? <laughs> We'll teach it to you okay, uh, later, th- yeah, later. Thanks, Jason. but uh, you you put music to the words, and it makes the words uh, kind of more memorable. Makes them stickier. You know, even just try so to rec-
0: uh, Is that a mnemonic device, or is that somebody else, something else? No, That's it, it,
1: it, it else. well, yeah, it, it can be a mnemonic device because it helps you to remember. I mean, try to recite to yourself just internally the Star Spangled Banner. I and, can't. Yeah. Yeah. If if you get stuck or you forget what the words something are. Something about Jose. It, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the music will join, will will almost automatically uh, come to your mind, and then you remember what what the words are. But what Dennis was describing before is, and this is uh, uh, even if it's not uh, explicitly mentioned, is this sacramental principle, right? That uh, the liturgy is woven together from signs and symbols, and one of these uh, really privileged signs and symbols is music. And as he was saying before, what the music helps to do is to express these internal and otherwise unheard, in this instance, uh, reality. So it's trying to put in, on human lips and in human ears, what is going on eternally and uh, uh, unsensibly. And one of these things, which we're getting to, is that God himself is, in a sense, uh, uh, musical. Right? So... Uh, D- Dennis mentioned that you know to sing is a combination of words and breath. You have to have both of those. And we see, so far as we understand these things, that the Trinity itself was God the Father, but then there's God the Son who's called the Word, and God the Holy Spirit who's called the breath. And it's as if the breath and the Word join together in this perfectly good and true and beautiful hymn of love to God the Father, which echoes throughout uh, all eternity. And so God himself is, uh, uh, in a sense, can be likened to this beautiful song. And when we sing in the liturgy, we are somehow abiding in that love song, which has been taking place throughout all the ages. We sacramentalize audibly that unheard
2: song, which is in the Trinity. Right. And we tend to think along the lines of campfire songs or devotional songs that we Go, have. yeah kumbaya we have some emotional thing that we have to express and let out into a certain sense that's true but in liturgical music there are two ways to think about it one that's kind of common is well let's sing a bunch of songs that make us feel good or keep the kids interest, interested uh and we'll sing to the people and then they'll have something to do in the quiet parts of the mass you could also think of it this way which is there's a pre-existing song in heaven which is the harmony and perfect uh praise that's happening uh, the, to the father with by the angels and saints and the son and our job is to pull back the curtain and allow ourselves not only to hear that but to participate in that so that the church pretty consistently teaches that the job of the choir is to support the singing of the people not sing to the people but help them join in the sacramental realization of the heavenly singing so again that by knowing how to sing and how to praise god and to know what the order and harmony of heaven sounds like that becomes second nature to you. And when you're, again, at the Heavenly Gates and St. Peter says, are you ready to join this choir? You say, yep, I've been at rehearsal every day for the last 80 years.
0: Um, so, Chris, you were mentioning about uh, music allowing the, the participants in the Mass to more actively participate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we do have, I would say, most people who go to Mass, there is, there is singing, there's Mass parts, things like that. Um, what what would an ideal uh, mass look like? I know there are sometimes the, the the priest is speaking when I go to mass, and sometimes he's singing, or sometimes we, we do an an entrance hymn, or sometimes it's just a melody. What what does an ideal type of worship look like uh, when we when we when we look at what the church teaches us about all this singing? What what can we what can we point towards?
1: Yeah, well, we should uh, point towards and begin with this trinitarian love song that we mentioned before and uh, the constitution on the sacred liturgy will say that jesus christ maybe you have this text dennis jesus christ the eternal high priest introduced into this earthly exile that hymn which is sung throughout all the ages in the halls of heaven so at the incarnation jesus who uh, uh pope benedict in the, in this document uh, verbum domini the word of the lord calls the soloist of creation The soloist of creation, the most important sung word of all of creation. So at the incarnation, though, uh, Jesus Christ uh, introduces into this earthly exile this song, which is this Trinitarian song that's been going on forever. And he, he, he now associates, as Dennis was saying, the whole mystical body with his singing. Okay, so we become members of the choir, and Pope Benedict even calls Jesus the choir director. So he's teaching us how to sing. Okay, so this is the unseen reality that should be expressed in how we actually sing, you know, as, as you ask, and when we come mm-hmm. to Mass, what should a sung Mass sound like? Okay, so if the reality is this dialogue, this sung word of love to the Father, there's a number of parts of the Mass that can be sung, but the most important parts are the dialogues because they best sacramentalize the eternal dialogue of love um, sung within the Trinity. Okay? You're, ta- this-
0: you're talking about anything that is uh, spoken between the presider and the, the parishioners, right? Well, and
1: not even just, just the priest. What the general instruction of the Roman Missal will say, I think this is in number 40, the most important parts to be sung are basically anything that the people can respond to, whether it's the priest or the deacon or even the readers, those are the most important parts to be sung. So, at the end of the first reading, the reader would sing, "The Word of the Lord." Thanks be to God. I mean, that's in the first category of things to be sung: amens to uh, prayers, the
0: preface, dialogue. So this Lord. is ordinal. This is it has an order of importance.
1: Yes, yes. It was uh, this first came to be expressed. And in fact, if you look at the footnotes of the general instruction of the Roman Missal today, uh, it will cite this document from 1967
2: called. Musicum Sacrum. Do you I mean, remember that's Musicum Sacrum? That's one I actually have heard I was, of. I was not born yet, Chris, but, <laughs> I mean, this was an official uh, teaching and um, explanation of Sacrosanctum and so it's a very important document in the sense that it's put out at the highest level to clarify what the council documents actually intend for music, and yet most people have never even heard of it, never mind implement what it says. Yeah, but
1: it gives these three categories that are roughly, and this is this is one of those things that have uh, adapted slightly over the last 50 years, uh, principally three different categories of things that might be sung. The first are the dialogues. Again, anything to which the people can sing in response, to the priest, to the deacon, to the other ministers. The second category is, I guess what we would call the mass ordinary, the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Credo, Sanctus, the Agnus Dei, the Memorial Acclamation, the Lamb of God, those types and then the third are what musicum sacrum says would be hymns uh, that could be sung. But even in, the, in their priority, we see this sacramentalization of this eternal song. So think about most of the songs that we're familiar with are called uh, uh, metered hymns, right? So you start with something in 4-4 four, four time. There's eight syllables, you know, bom, 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 bom. What does that say? called Old Hundredth, okay. So this song, this metered song, uh, can take a variety of texts, right? You can sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. I should look this up beforehand, but there's a number of of texts that you can put into that song. But notice what's coming first, the word or the music. In this instance, it's the music, and the word is kind of an afterthought, a secondary thought. But for us, I mean, it's, it's, this is a theological truth. Uh, the word truth should here.
0: be first. The word
1: should be first, right? It's the word that is saved. I just thought us. of that on my own. That's great. That's great.
2: You got me there. And you the principle there. there is that the texts of the liturgy, that is, the texts in the Missal, have primacy over everything else. So there's actually an entrance chant listed in the Missal for every single day of the year. And most people don't know that this entrance chant or this introit exists. And they'll substitute some hymn that they happen to like. Which is permissible, but it's not the first uh, request of the church. That the, the, the texts that are there for the entrance chant or the communion chant usually relate to the reading for that day or some important uh, biblical theme, and you can't just substitute any trendy hymn without losing the importance of that. So
0: we have a cart and a horse deal here, you know. One, the word is first. The word is first. And and Chris, you were talking about how when when Christ came, you know that he became the the, the choir, you know, the choir director, choir director, yeah. choir director. and um, so. So Christ introduced this this song for us as the new covenant, right?
1: Yeah, and it's a dialogical song based on the word. Dennis mentioned the uh, uh, Regina Chaley before. Mm-hmm. Regina Chaley, So this queen of heaven, it's almost the, the word determines how the music should sound. The word comes first, unlike these metrical hymns where the meter comes first and you've got to fit the word into it. And so what, in this first category of things to be sung, these dialogues, they're not measured. They're not metered. It's the word determines the music. In the name of the Father so and of the Son. So it's the flow the of the language th- then that determines Right. Wow. Right. And exactly. That's
2: one of the special things about chant is people think chant just means a lot of floating notes hanging around that's too hard to sing. But actually, properly speaking, chant is based on the natural rhythm and meter of the text itself and it grows from the text, and the text is never crammed into some pre-existing melody. Which is the
0: opposite of, I guess, how I would think of music. Um, I, I have some music background, but, uh, you know, if I ever wanted to sing something to music, I would adapt the word to form whatever notes or tone I want, and I, and I would imagine that most musicians do a similar thing, right?
1: Well, I think so. That's most of our, if we've had any musical formation uh, uh, recently, it, it's it's time signatures and the rest, it's all, it's the meter comes first and the words seem to be, well, and you know, we even, um, I think each of us individually, you know, are you a, a word listener to popular music or a sound listener, a song oh, listener to popular music?
2: A if it's catchy,
0: if yeah. it's catchy, you know, I want to I wanna hear that too. Yeah,
1: that, that's, that's uh, my experience as well. You, you might not even know what the lyrics are. Yeah,
0: sometimes I read the lyrics <laughs> later and I'm just like, that is not what I yeah. thought that song was about.
1: Yeah, well, the church isn't like that. The church is first uh, a word listener and the music adorns the word. And all the way throughout uh, uh, church history... You know, whenever the music started to obscure the word, even in um, uh, uh, these pieces by, uh, I guess, uh, Josquin Dupre, he was, uh, just prior to the Council of Trent, very excellent, beautiful musician, but he had all of these voices kind of just stacked up on on top of each other. I think that's a technical musical term, stacked mm-hmm. up. Um, musically, it was very beautiful, but... The, the, the clarity of the text was lost in all of this. And so even the, uh, they say that the Council of Trent was going to do away with all polyphony. Just go back to the unadorned chant. Okay? But uh, at the last, uh, uh, the, the musical savior of polyphony, uh, Palestrina came in and, and showed how polyphony could work that would help to safeguard the centrality of the text. Which is an expression of the centrality of the Word, who is our Redeemer.
0: I guess a good example of what you're talking about losing the text, for me at least, is is opera because I really I have a hard time understanding, even if it's a, in English, understanding the words that are happening. It's it, to me, I I hear the the flow of the music and and the uh, the and the notes, you know, rising and falling, but I, I, it's hard for me to grasp the text out of it.
2: Would Pius the Tenth agree with uh, Jesse on this point? Well, Pius X the Tenth and Charles the specifically. Uh, Forbade what he called theatrical music. Man, yeah. we I am think of, on it today. We think of opera as sort of highbrow music, but in, in his day, you know, you have all these people dying of consumption and, you know, Mimi's like dying on her bed and La Bohème. You have all these uh, sort of hyper dramatic stories. Um, and that kind of music was coming into the church and you'd have you know, uh, a 15-minute creed and the, the whole verbum caro factum est would be sung by a soprano and it would take five minutes and it would be this you know, virtuoso example of her vocal range as opposed to the clarity of the text. And, you know, in looking at what Vatican II, you know, Vatican is the great 20th century um, expression, we're still living in that, in that period, says that um, sacred song is uh, preeminent in the sense that it's united to the words and that it's integral to the liturgy. It's not a thing you stop the liturgy to do. So, oh, let's stop the liturgy and then we'll have a song. Its primacy is singing the text of the liturgy itself and giving those words elevated expression and more powerful uh, potential to touch the heart.
1: The uh, the Church's document on the general instruction of the liturgy the hours uh, will say right at the very end, and incidentally I think it's the, the apostolic constitution of Pius VI that introduces this is called laudis canticum, the hymn of praise, which is a, a expression that's come right out of the Second Vatican Council. But at the end of uh, the general instruction or introduction to the Liturgy of the Hours, it says that music is never thought to be an afterthought, some sort of extra sprinkle that you might put on in the end if you really wanted to adorn it. As, the, as Dennis is reading from the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, it's, it's integral. It's essential. Uh, our God is a singing God. Our church is a singing church. Our liturgy should, is, is meant to be uh, a, song, a song liturgy. So even at a and in our current bishops' document on Sing to the Lord will speak about this very thing. They'll they'll make some uh, uh, adjustments to what uh, Musicam Sacram said. But the current legislation from our U.S. bishops, the most recent legislation, says even at a daily mass, it should be normative that the dialogues are sung, sign of the cross, greeting, the oration should be sung. You know, then the uh, uh, mass ordinaries should be able to be sung because they're. They're constant, you know. They they don't take a they don't require a lot of musical skill. Uh, they're easy to sing, and they truly f- uh, facilitate the people's participation.
2: In many cases, we're doing exactly backwards from what. Yeah, the Yeah, I, I was just going to say. So we I don't, don't really, sing anything. We sing a hymn at the beginning of the end, and a hymn in the middle, and don't sing anything else. That's that's the lowest priority of things to do is to add hymns to the mass. The primary things: the dialogues and the ordinary, and then these uh, proper texts for the day. Hymns okay. are allowed as a substitution for the proper's, the proper parts, but they're not the first request of the church. Well, even think of the uh,
1: we talk about the constitution on the sacred liturgy, but one of the other constitutions was De Verbum, right, on the Word of God, and to to sing these antiphons and these proper texts, which are all scriptural, you know, as beautiful as a hymn from John Henry Cardinal Newman or Thomas Aquinas or Venuncius Fortunatus or Marty Haugen or whatever it is, those are not those are not the same as the scriptural texts that the church has. They can be very good, but they don't uh, reach the level of sacred scripture. So to sing those propers is also
2: to respect the constitution on the word of God from the Second Vatican Council. Right. And if you ask the average person, what did Vatican II give us? Well, they, they, they gave us a bunch of hymns in English that we finally get to sing. But that's really not an expectation of the Council that hymns would replace the Gregorian chant. In fact, the Council document itself says Gregorian chant should be given pride of place precisely because they want people to say and sing the words of the liturgy itself, and not substitute some other devotional song in its place.
0: Now, I I gotta ask too, um, vernacular as opposed to Latin, is is there any type of Church teaching or preference to the language that we're using? Well, initially,
1: at least, you know, we can talk about the mind of the council or the spirit of the council. But I think the documents uh, say pretty explicitly that you know, Latin remains the the proper language of the uh, of the Roman Church, and uh, ought to be used. However, uh, because the use of the mother tongue, the vernacular, can uh, help facilitate the people's participation, a, a broader use of that vernacular can be used. Now, very shortly after the uh, after the council when the vernacular began to be introduced, uh, the, the bishops saw that it really was, it really did facilitate people's participation. I mean, not automatically. I mean, just because something is in the vernacular doesn't mean that this... It doesn't mis- mean you
0: understand it. It's, exactly. <laughs> or that you're paying
1: attention to what you're saying. True, true. So just the switch from uh, from vernacular, or excuse me, from Latin to vernacular doesn't uh, of itself uh, mean a greater participation. But it uh, it... it does seem to open up the possibility. So, still though, uh, the Constitution and uh, the subsequent documents uh, say that at least the, the ordinary parts of the Mass, that everybody should be able to sing uh, in Latin, everybody should know. Um, and part of that's because it's, it's, it's an expression of the universality of the Church. And so, you know, if we were people of different languages can come together and still be able to sing these common parts.
0: Well, I definitely understand that. Uh you know, you were talking about how if you want to enhance just spoken word, then you can sing it. Um, I, I understand how the you're saying the Latin is the, the church's language. So we can have music and, and chant in the vernacular, but, you know, just like you're talking about the universal church and being that it is what the church recommends that these Latin chants can really enhance the liturgy.
2: Right. That's why the council documents... Specifically, say, certain places have preeminence in modeling this. So cathedrals are supposed to have more elaborate musical uh, programs, specifically keeping the tradition alive in every diocese. Specifically
0: cathedrals as opposed to...
2: Your local parish church. who may not have the resources or the, the oh, singers. Oh, okay, So the cathedral is supposed to model everything at the highest level, and then people can see the norm there and then come back to their own parish wow. and do what they can. that's
0: interesting. That's something I, I would say that I necessarily see, but I think that's probably... Another podcast because you know when you're talking about the, the the importance of you know what should be sung in the mass and Dennis you had alluded to this I think sometimes we see that it's a little backwards that's probably you know stuff for another podcast where mm-hmm. we kind of talk about you know maybe how to right the ship in a sense there but um, well, I do see that there is a little bit of a disconnect
2: well I think one thing that's very interesting is. Even though we're 50 years after the Council, we live in many ways in a pre-conciliar mindset. So when when people didn't understand the Latin and they were mostly going to low Mass, where the priest would speak mostly inaudibly and they didn't know what was going on, they got permission, Rome gave permission in Pius XII's time, for people to sing hymns at the beginning of Mass so they could do something. And so that became the norm, sing a hymn at the beginning, sing a hymn at the end, sing a hymn in the middle. But what the Council Fathers really wanted was people to sing the text of the Mass. But what we kept doing was singing him at the beginning, <laughs> singing him at the end, singing him in the middle, instead of actually singing the proper thing. So we're in this uh, mode that's very preconciliar, even though the average person would say, well, this is what Vatican II asked for us to do.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, like, like I said, I think we're definitely going to dive into music again sometime in the future. But um, just kind of a, a great overview of where we're at. And Dennis, what do you think? It's time for... Uh, Check out another email. Email question? I I
2: love these things. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what
0: this is, class? Anyone? This just in, we have another Liturgy Guys email. And this one comes to us from a James. James says, may the creed ever be omitted for Sunday Mass?
1: The answer is no.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, Craig? yes. Oh. Well, I mean, some. Uh-oh. Well. I thought um, that was going to be a lot easier. Yeah,
1: but never easy. Um, no, the, uh, the books, uh, the instructions will say that the creed is to be said on Sundays and solemnities. There's not an option. So Sundays and Solemnities, the creed is said, but then the exceptions come in. Uh, On the one hand, uh, there's an octave that follows Easter and Christmas, and each of these days is considered a solemnity, but the creed isn't called for then. Um, Another time where the creed may not be said is if the, uh, if there's a, a baptism or the case for the renewal of baptismal promises. But uh, as Dennis has mentioned, this is just another way of saying the creed. The, the substance and the content is just the same. Um, maybe another thing we should say, too, is there's two options for the creed. There's the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed, or simply just the Nicene creed. Uh, and the Apollo creed. Uh, no, oh, the, no the, the, that's a different oh, one. Oh, yeah, yeah, got it. The apo- that's good. The Apostles <laughs> creed. Uh, which can be said as well. Now, in the second edition of the Roman Missal, which ceased to be used uh, in 2011, uh, the the option was only for the Nicene Creed. But now that we're using the third edition, the the option is as well to use uh, the Apostles' Creed. So one of three things has to take place, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed or the Apostles' Creed or the renewal of baptismal promises uh, on all Sundays and most solemnities.
0: Okay, well... That answers our question for the week. If you would like to submit a question to The Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you,
2: and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.